Today, I am talking about the C word. It's the word commitment. Commitment is the foundation of every marriage, every church, every mission, and every ministry. The C word is indispensable to following Christ. I was watching the Olympics, and NBC did a background story on David Wise, the American silver medalist in the half-pipe competition. They showed him leading Bible studies with his family and sharing his faith in Christ. David Wise made an interesting statement. He said that although he tackles challenging athletic contests, they are not that hard compared to the challenge of following Christ. The commitment to follow Christ is harder than any other commitment we make in life. I've talked about many aspects of spiritual renewal in the book of Nehemiah on both individual and corporate levels, but commitment is the foundation of all spiritual renewal. You will not rebuild your broken world without a commitment to follow Christ. You will never rebuild your broken world without a commitment to spiritual change. Revival requires a commitment to change, and we must do the changing. We cannot hire someone else to do our changing for us. There is no such thing as revival by proxy. We cannot substitute our good intentions for actual changes in our lives. Nehemiah gives us some basic principles on how to commit ourselves to making spiritual changes that will last. First, our commitment to change involves corporate formality. Nehemiah 9.38-10.27 through 10, The chapter division between Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 10 is in a bad spot here. Verse 38 of Nehemiah 9 belongs with the opening verses of Nehemiah 10. Listen to the words of Nehemiah 9.38. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. The first 27 verses of Nehemiah 10 lists the 21 signers of this legal document. The Hebrew term for making a covenant or an agreement literally means cutting a covenant. That's because originally in the ancient Near East, when they, when they decided to sign a contract with someone, the two parties would sign the contract in blood. They would kill an animal and then cut the animal in two pieces. They would lay those two pieces of the carcass opposite to one another so that there was a path between the two pieces. Then they would walk between the two carcasses. This was the way they signed contracts in the ancient Near East. They were telling each other, and the language of the contract would often read this way, May God do the same thing to us as we have done to these animals if we break our contract with one another. Now that kind of contract signing is rather graphic. It's quite different from the reams of paper which we sign today, and 
probably more effective in making the terms of the contract binding on the participants. But by the time of Nehemiah, they used legal documents, like we use today, which they would sign, which equated to cutting a covenant with each other. If you have signed mortgage papers in recent times, then you know the importance of signing legal documents. Along with the reams of paper you sign, you also sign what has been called the Popeye document. Young people, you may not get the reference to a cartoon character from many years ago named Popeye, but the Popeye document is the I am who I am paper, because Popeye used to say I am who I am in that cartoon series. So everybody has to sign a Popeye document. I am who I am. Well, the people of Israel sign a contract with God in these verses. It's a formal, sealed document, the text tells us. It was a public affirmation of their commitment to God. There were 21 people who signed the document on behalf of the nation as a whole, and Nehemiah heads the list, and the priests, Levites, and nobles of the nation also signed their names to this commitment. Years later, the Qumran community of Jews practiced an annual renewal of vows to God as a formal corporate commitment. You see, there is a corporate formality to this covenant, and it helps, I think, to make formal and public declarations of our commitments. Think of the Declaration of Independence upon which America was founded. Fifty-six people signed the Declaration on behalf of the 13 colonies. Many of these men paid dearly for signing that document. They lost their homes and economic security. Some lost their lives or had family members who died in the Revolutionary War. These were formal public commitments. And we should do the same in our spiritual lives. Don't make promises which you cannot keep, my friends. Make commitments and then ask others to hold you accountable for the commitments you are making to God. I read this statement somewhere, and I like it. A winner makes commitments. A loser makes promises. God doesn't want our promises. He wants our commitments. Any local church could pave the floor of the worship center with dollar bills on the promises of people to give and to serve. Promises are a dime a dozen, and God knows that. It is commitments that count with God. The second principle here, our commitment to change involves biblical foundations. It involves biblical foundations. Nehemiah 10 verses 28 and 29. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. 
There are, of course, many kinds of commitments that we make in life. We can be committed to a cause, or we can be committed to a person. But you will notice that this commitment is a commitment to the law of God. That expression is mentioned in both 28 and 29. Their commitment was to obey God's laws. Today, we would say that it is a commitment to the Bible, God's word, that governs our lives. They took a curse and an oath to follow God's ways. The first word translated curse meant to make solemn statement while calling down a curse on your head if it was untrue. It was like saying, cross my heart and hope to die, except they meant it. It wasn't just a little phrase that someone might say. The second word meant to give one's unbreakable commitment to do exactly what one said. In the Old Testament, God swore an oath to Abraham in Genesis 26.3, and God told the people to swear by his name in Deuteronomy 6.13. The word oath is interesting because it is identical to the Hebrew word for seven. Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21 swear to each other in signing a contract over the rights to a well. Abraham gives Abimelech seven sheep to seal the deal. The place is named Beersheba, which means well of the seven. So a spiritual commitment rests on these biblical foundations. We must be committed to following God's word. Sometimes I hear Christians say that we are to commit ourselves to God, not the Bible. They say that when we emphasize the inerrancy of Scripture and its supreme authority over our lives, that we are worshiping the Bible instead of the God of the Bible. But this is not so at all. We owe our allegiance to God, of course, but we cannot even know God or know what God wants us to do apart from the Bible. To commit ourselves to God is to commit ourselves to his word, the Bible. We cannot be committed to one without the other, just like they could not be committed to God without a commitment to the law of God. Christians must be known as a people of the book. We are to commit ourselves to obey God's word, to do what he says. No excuses, no delays, no procrastination. We should not be like the child who promises his mother to dry the dishes, but instead lets them air dry. Sometimes we can fall into the mentality that if we just ignore the problems long enough, they will drip dry away and we won't have to do anything about them. Commitment does not mean that we will obey God someday when we get around to it. Commitment means that we will obey God now. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Weight of Glory, God cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims it all. There's no bargaining with him. 
we need a renewal of our vows to the Lord every now and then. We need a regular reminder of our obligations to God. We are reminded of those obligations in the Word of God, and that is why the Word of God, the Bible, is the foundation for all lasting spiritual change. The third principle, our commitment to change involves specific obligations, Nehemiah 10, 30-39. There are obligations that come with our commitment to the Lord. We must obey his word and follow his will. That commitment to follow his will means that we will do what God says. We must commit ourselves to certain specific obligations that God teaches us in the Bible. Now, this is not legalism. It is biblicism. I'm convinced that the pursuit of fun is killing the church in the Western world. The desire for pleasure, apart from God, drives our choices in life. The fundamental question for many is, am I having fun yet? We accumulate as many toys as we can afford and orient our weekends around the enjoyment of those toys. How often do we refuse to get involved at church or serve in a ministry because it's inconvenient or it's dull? Church is boring, so we find other more exciting ways to fill up our leisure time. Distracted by the desires of this world, we are attracted to the things that have no eternal value. And we are inundated with choices today. Every minute of our lives, we have dozens of options. We hit the button on our phones and scroll through the news feeds, checkbook and Facebook and Twitter, and watch some YouTube and TikTok videos. We develop a restlessness of spirit, which avoids commitment and kills consistency. Video producers understand our restlessness. The average attention span is only about eight seconds. So by the time the video loads, the producer has about five seconds to grab your attention. Humans have a reticular activating system, or RAS, built into their brains. RAS quickly filters out unnecessary information or unwanted images. So producers know that they have to change the image often because our brains respond to new images, emotional and catchy memes, stimuli, and personal connections. The video is constantly changing to retain our attention, and the result, the result, is greater restlessness of spirit. We become wired to respond to constant change, not consistency. Restlessness. Distraction. Is it any wonder we have a hard time remaining committed to God's priorities in life? In Nehemiah 10, we see five specific obligations mentioned in this contract which the nation of Israel makes with God. These specific obligations should be the priorities of our lives as well. First, in Nehemiah 10.30, we see our family responsibilities. 
The people affirmed their commitment by saying, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Some people have a hard time with this prohibition of marriage outside of the faith. They think of it as racism. But the issue for the Jew was not racial. It was religious. If a Gentile, that is a non-Jew ethnically, racially, if a Gentile became a follower of God, in other words, a religious Jew, marriage was allowed. They were not supposed to marry outside the believing community because marriage was a faith issue. It was all about commitment to God, and parents had an obligation to teach their children to be committed to God. Well, it's the same today. Obviously, we don't give our daughters in marriage in the same way anymore, but we should teach our children that allegiance to God is foundational for marriage. We are not to enter into mixed marriages. And I do not mean racially mixed marriages. There's nothing wrong with racially mixed marriages. I mean religiously mixed marriages. Just like the ancient Israelites, you will be led away from worshiping God if you marry outside of the faith. Again, I'm not talking about denominations. I'm talking about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That spiritual relationship with God for both parties is foundational to a Christian marriage. And the family is under attack today, not just because of the liberals in Washington, D.C., but because of the busyness of Christians in suburbia, USA. Some Christian parents need to rearrange their schedules so they can invest themselves in their sons and daughters. They may, that may mean not working outside the home or working less outside the home. We often attack mothers working outside the home, but parenting is not just for mothers. Absentee fathers are an even bigger problem than working mothers. Maybe dad should cut back and not take that promotion because the responsibilities will affect his family obligations. Maybe the family needs to live on less or sacrifice a career for the sake of the children. It may also mean that we don't do as much at church. It is no more spiritual to fill our lives with church busyness while neglecting the needs of our children. I realized the importance of this when I was a pastor. What have I gained if I am always out working in the church, but my own children are neglected, my own family? That was why there were times when I chose to be with my family instead of a church program, because we all have family responsibilities before the Lord. That is a priority. Second, establish a worship day, Nehemiah 10.31, a worship day. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, Christians are not required to keep the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. We have been freed from the obligation to keep special days and months and seasons and years, according to Galatians 4.10. Paul wrote these words in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. 
Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. However, there is a legitimate application that we can draw from the Sabbath laws for our lives today. I believe that Christians should set aside Sundays as a worship day. The priority should be to gather in corporate worship on Sundays, the first day of the week. Of course, some people have to work at least some of the time on Sundays. We understand that. But most Christians have some measure of choice in what they do on Sundays. Why is it that Christians choose to make Sunday the play day instead of the worship day? We don't want to be rigid and legalistic about Sundays, of course, but Christian families should commit themselves to the priority of regular worship, a regular worship day each week. Like the Sabbath, we should avoid performing our normal activities and making worshiping as a family the top priority on Sunday. Yes, the church must learn to adjust to family needs in a changing world, but the family must commit to the church as regular and consistent as a regular and consistent center of worship. Saturdays can become the play day, but we should seek to reserve Sundays for worship, not play, as much as possible. What do we teach our children about the priority of worshiping the Lord when we do most anything else instead on Sunday? Don't we teach them by our example that corporate worship is peripheral to the really important stuff of life? Having fun is more important than gathering in worship. The sad truth is that our children learn very quickly what we value in life and they will follow that example in adulthood. One writer put it this way, Some Christians, in a hurry to escape something they have labeled legalism, have replaced it with neglect. Yard work is a necessity. Extra sleep is a necessity. Entertaining is a necessity. Viewing sports events is a necessity. Church attendance and participation in church rank with visiting Grandpa's grave, calling your college roommate, and viewing the art wing of the museum. You have every intention of doing it, unless something more important comes up. Third priority, we should value the worship center. Nehemiah 10, 32 and 33. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. The people of Nehemiah's day also committed themselves to paying the temple tax. Now, the temple tax was not a tithe, but was an additional amount of money which they paid specifically to maintain the facilities of the temple complex where they worshipped. 
the money was used to provide the showbread, which were twelve cakes of fine flour arranged in rows of six and set out for each Sabbath. The sacrificial system needed to be maintained, and repairs were needed for the temple building. The money helped pay for all of these matters related to the worship center. Now, how do we apply this concept to us today? The Jews understood the importance of a central location for worship. They valued corporate worship and wanted the building used for worship to reflect well on the God they worshipped. And we need the same conviction today. The church building and grounds reflect how we value God. I sometimes hear people say that we don't need a building for a worship center because we can worship God in our homes. Well, of course, that is certainly true. But if we're going to have a central worship center for the community of faith, the corporate body, if we're going to have that central worship center, it should reflect well on God because we worship him. Sometimes people will say, we shouldn't spend so much money on the building and grounds because it should be spent on missions or evangelism. However, the building and grounds of a church communicate God silently to the surrounding community every day. People will either be attracted to our God by the attractiveness of our worship center, or they will be distracted from God by the sloppy nature of our property. More people make determinations about the God we worship as they drive by the church building each day than we can possibly witness to verbally. Our buildings are a silent witness. Do you suppose anyone drives by our church buildings and says, Wow! They must have a great God. We should value the worship center, make our facilities the best we can give to God, without neglecting other priorities of ministry, of course. It doesn't just mean money. We can support the worship center through work days designed to make it more attractive and well-maintained. And that leads to the fourth specific obligation we should observe personal service. Nehemiah 10 verses 34 to 36. Personal service should be a priority. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's households, at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground, and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. The people also committed themselves to support the ministries of the temple, in various ways. They gave of their resources, in verse 34. The wood was needed to maintain the sacrificial system and to provide for the priests and Levites. They gave of their offerings, in verse 35. These offerings were the first fruits of their harvest. The best of their food was given as an offering to the Lord, thanking him for his provision for them. They gave of their lives in verse 36. The firstborn male child 
and the firstborn of all the animals, as well as the first crops of the field, belong to the Lord. The rabbis wrote in the Mishnah, It is not only the best that, that belongs to God, but also the first. It would be presumptuous for man to enjoy something without first giving God his portion. Now, the law, of course, allowed the people to buy back their firstborn sons by paying a redemption price, according to Exodus 13.13. But the process reminded them that the first of everything belonged to the Lord. We have skills, abilities, and material resources. Do we use them for the Lord? Do we give to him the first and best of our time, energy, talents, and money? The church should not have to come begging for the service of Christians. We do not say, please, please serve in the nursery or help with youth group. The God of all heaven and earth begs for no man's service. He gives us the privilege of serving him. The fifth specific obligation is financial support. Nehemiah 10, verses 37 to 39. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the, of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Once again, I believe we are not under the Old Testament law to pay tithes. Let me make that clear. There is no place in the New Testament where we are told to pay tithes like they did under the Old Testament law. However, shouldn't we ha have at least as much desire to support God's work under grace as they did under law? Why is it that God's work suffers from the lack of funds while man's work seems to have the best that money can buy? Could it be that God's people do not properly support God's work, do not properly value God? And if God's people do not support God's work, who will? The prophet Malachi tells the people of his day that they are stealing from God by not paying their tithes. How many of us steal from God by giving him our leftovers? The church should never beg for money because that reflects poorly on our God and our commitment to God. God's people should love to give their money for that reflects on the love of God for us. A number of years ago, a man named Larry Walters decided he wanted to see his neighborhood from above. He wanted to make a drastic change and get a wonderful viewpoint. 
This was long before the drones we have today. Well, Larry was a 33-year-old man who went down to the local army surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons. Then he strapped himself into a lawn chair, and his friend tied the balloons to the back of the chair. He took along a six-pack of beer, a peanut butter sandwich, and a BB gun. The BB gun was so he could shoot the balloons one at a time to descend to the ground. Larry calculated that the balloons would carry him about a hundred feet in the air. But instead, he soared more than 11,000 feet into the sky. He flew right into the air traffic pattern around a busy airport, which had to be shut down for more than two hours. After Larry was finally grounded, he was asked by reporters, Were you scared? Yes, he replied, yes. Would you do it again? No. Why did you do it? Because, he replied, you can't just sit there. You can't just sit there. Well, you have to admire his commitment to do something. He was tired of just sitting around. He wanted to do something significant. My friends, revival requires a commitment to change, to do something. We can't just sit there and expect God to bless our lives. But God is not looking for foolish commitments that lead to silly adventures like Larry did. The kind of commitment God is looking for is not a commitment that promises the moon but never delivers. The kind of commitment God is looking for is the kind that promises the steady, consistent transformation of our lives one day at a time. It may not be spectacular or exciting, but it is real and lasting. Make a contract with God to begin today to change some aspect of your life to align yourself more with his will. It's the only way you will find spiritual wholeness in life.